Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jesse Rosen. And one of the nuns said very specifically, don't go try to read to the woman on the second floor in the corner. That's Birdie. She's blind and she bites. That and more. But first, the final Risk live show of 2023 is in L.A. at the Lyric Hyperion on December 19th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets, as always, are at risk-show.com slash live. So go get them. We'll be right back. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now here's the show. Hello, folks. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Chris Joss behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Coming of Age. I think one of the reasons that coming of age stories are so potent is that so many of us feel like on some level... We're still growing up, still experimenting, still discovering and finding our way. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Aaron Calafato. But before that, a story from Jesse Rosen, whose novel The Heirloom is available for pre-order. And you can find her at Jesse Rosen Writer on Instagram. So here's Jesse now at the Risk Live show in L.A. with a story we call Thinking About birdie
So I am standing in the middle of the common room at Mother Teresa's Home for the Homeless, desperately trying not to vomit. And this is hard because it's 99 degrees and it's 100% humidity and there's urine, kind of pools of it all throughout the room. And this is pretty ironic because it is the spring break of my senior year of college. So I am supposed to be trying not to vomit after too many tequila shots at a swim-up pool bar in Cancun. But I have come on a Jesuit Catholic service trip to Kingston, Jamaica, because I am finally going to fucking connect with God. So far in my 3.5 years at the competitively Catholic Boston College, the Lord above has evaded me. And I have tried everything. I have been at the best priest's weekday morning prayer sessions. I have been at the weekend retreats. I even did this very weird thing called Kairos, which maybe you're familiar with, where among the other insane things, you sit in a circle and stare into each other's eyes as Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes plays, which is, you know, a little on the nose, but apparently God is in the eye, so like, you pick a better song. I I just, you know, I didn't find God there, and I hadn't really found him anywhere in my life to this date, despite a lot of lying that I had. So I was raised by a Roman Catholic Italian mother, and for years I had been promising her that, yes, I did feel the presence of God as Teresa sang the Ave Maria during the Christmas Eve Mass in honor of my great-grandmother, Carmela but it never felt God in any way, shape, or form. And I was literally running out of years of Catholic school in which to do so. And to make matters even more stressful, now was really a helpful time to hear from him. I'm at the end of my college years, and people all around me are getting these annoying messages like Meg and my senior spirituality seminar, Our Real Class, who heard from God that she should be a lawyer, not a doctor, which was incredibly convenient. I, meanwhile, am just trying to figure out if I want to be Jesse or Jessica upon graduation. (laughs) And so I spend my spring semester in Jamaica, living in a convent, super promising, with 11 other students, where we are meant to provide many services and do many prayers over the course of a week, living among the people of this community. But we are on day seven of seven, and so far, no God, still. I had seen devastating abject poverty, that most politicians were doing nothing about. I had felt the sting of witnessing corporal punishment in their school system. I had heard a priest tell a group of rape victims that he had heard God and God forgave them. But so far, still no God for me. And so I'm bummed and I'm confused and I'm sad. And I'm at my final post, which is at Mother Teresa's Home for the Homeless, where it smells like urine and I'm trying not to vomit. And all I have to do to get through this God-forsaken, pun-unavoidable week is to read to a group of women from these Nancy Drew books that we brought with us from Boston. And so I'm sitting among them and trying to read and no one's listening and everyone's talking over me. And finally, this one woman looks at me and says, God bless, miss, but go home. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, because she can see through me. She's probably seen a thousand of me. She knows that I'm here for me and not her. She knows that I'm here trying to find something for myself. And so I I put down the book. I walk away from the room feeling ashamed and, and disconnected and weird still. And as I'm walking, roaming the halls of Mother Teresa's, I hear this sound 
coming from the distance, this low kind of um, murmury, creepy sound. Um, and it sounds like... Uh, probably not God, but I go towards it. I'm curious. It takes me, as I'm listening, up to the second floor of the building, where in the corner I see the shape of what I, I realize eventually is a woman. And my mind is jogged immediately back to when we first arrived at Mother Teresa's, my volunteer group and I, and one of the nuns said very specifically, don't go try to read to the woman on the second floor in the corner. That's Birdie, she's blind, and she bites. And I'm like, this woman? This woman? This woman is practically curled in half. She is so small so inside herself, so tucked into this corner, I cannot fathom that she could even move herself up from this seat. And there's something about her that is drawing me toward her. And also, fuck it. If this bitch bites me, at least I'll have some kind of story to compete with all the Cancun debacles that everyone else is going to be telling. So I, I make some paces toward her. And meanwhile, now I can tell that what she's doing is humming. And it's this, I don't know, you know, this kind of, this very um, creepy, but also kind of enchanting hum. And as I get closer, I say, hello, wondering how soon someone who cannot see can sense me and feeling like that's the appropriate thing to do. And she kind of stops humming and kind of straightens. If it's a centimeter, it's that at most. And so I say, I'm Jesse. I'm from America, like some goddamn kindergarten teacher. <laughs> and she bows her head that centimeter back down, and she continues on humming. But I am drawn to her still. And so I stand there looking at her, and she is, you know, this, this, this vision in a pink silk nightgown that's tattered at the edges, it has holes in the sleeves, and yet this beautiful, delicate lace, something I would have dreamed of wearing as a little girl. And she has on these pink slippers that match, the tone of the pink matches perfectly, which is so sweet to me, whether she did it or someone did it for her. And she's hunched over, yes, but she's kind of curled into herself, almost as if she's giving herself a hug almost as if she's been sitting there giving herself this hug and singing to herself because maybe no one else will. And so I get a little bit closer, so close that now she takes that inch centimeter up and looks to the left where I now am, still humming, never stopping. And so I can see into her eyes and they are this gray, blue, glassy, green universe. But she's sizing me up. <laughs> She's staring into me in a way that would make Peter Gabriel fall to his goddamn knees. And I think maybe she's inviting me in. I don't know. But I get closer still, so close that I can kind of crouch down next to her in the chair where she's sitting and almost use the arm of the chair to brace myself as she hums. And the hum is getting clearer, cleaner. It's like a mmm. It sounds a little nicer, maybe for my presence, I don't know. 
But I come from a family of hummers. My dad likes to hum at the kitchen sink, mostly show tunes, a little hmm, 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 on top, fringe with a surrey on top, anybody? Yeah. And my mom, mostly in the car when she's stressed out, kind of a hmm, that's here I am, Lord, probably you know, and maybe that does connect to my own situation with God. We'll get to that in another session. And they also used to hum to me when they would put me to bed at night. They would rub my back, and either of them would hum something like a daddy's little girl, something like a good night, sweetheart. And I don't know if it's the memory of that. I don't know if it's the fact that now my arm is on the chair next to Bertie's arm, and they're kind of touching, and I can feel the warmth of her deep ebony skin against mine. I don't really know what it is, because this woman bites and I am kind of making an insane move here. But I take my other hand, and I just start to rub it along the skin of her forearm, kind of gently back and forth. And then I join her in this humming. I hum along with her because at this point, I've kind of memorized whatever tune she has going. And when I do that, when I touch her and when I begin to hum, She lifts her body up more than I have seen yet, much more than a centimeter, much more than a few inches. And she's not looking at me, she's looking ahead, but she's kind of unraveling in this way with this touch. Um, I can feel it. I can feel being with her right now, and the chills that I felt then are the chills that I feel right now. So we go on together, humming these eight, this eight bar, this eight count, over and over and over again as I rub her arm. And it's, it's kind of becoming clear to me that, wait a minute, this is a melody that I know. It's starting to register that these are notes that I'm familiar with, that they actually do get together, that she's actually humming a song. And, and then it kind of hits me. And I say to her, oh, Bertie, you are my sunshine. You're humming, you're my sunshine. Do you, do you know that? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I hum the whole song. And in doing so, I kind of, you know, get excited and my, my arms fly up. And she turns and she looks at me again. And those steely eyes say, duh. <laughs> and then she takes my hand from where it left her own skin and puts it right back on top of her forearm so that I would continue. This is a song I know very well. My grandfather used to sing it up and down the docks of where his beach house was as he tried to catch crabs, maybe as some kind of serenade to help them in the traps. So I know it, and I start singing it, singing the lyrics, and I say to her, Bertie, do you, do you know the words? Can you sing the words with me? You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. And she just keeps humming. Whether she doesn't know the words or whether the hum is what soothes her, she just keeps humming along with me as I sing the words, like this slam-bang duo that's going to someday really kill it at the Mother Teresa's Christmas show. <laughs> and we sit there, I don't know how long, maybe 30 full minutes, and I'm rubbing her arm, and I'm singing the song, and she's humming along, and as it all happens, she's unraveling and unraveling and unraveling and unraveling to the point where she is straight up in that chair, no longer curled over, no longer hugging herself. Her chin is kind of up and looking into the distance. She actually has taken her legs from their kind of cramped style, and now they're crossed, and they're under the chair, and she just looks like this regal, proper 
beautiful woman. And I feel a connection to her. You know, I feel that sort of connection you feel if you've ever been around a baby that's first starting to notice humans. You know, you just feel like they're right there with you and that you are one in this, in this really interesting way. And then the bell rings for dinner and it interrupts me, but not Bertie. She probably heard it a thousand times and never stopped humming that tune. But it interrupts me, and then I start to hear the clamor of things going on downstairs, of the nuns yelling, of the residents yelling. And I am so sad to be drawn away from this moment. This is my last day. This is my really only chance to be in this space with this woman. And I say, thank you for, thank you for singing with me. Thank you for humming with me, Birdie. This was really lovely. And she takes both of my hands into hers and she lifts them up to her tiny, wrinkled, thin line of a mouth. And then she kisses them, which is the absolute opposite of a bite. I stopped looking for God pretty much right after that trip to Jamaica. And I haven't been associated or comfortable with any kind of organized religion since. But I think about Birdie all the time. I think about her when I feel disconnected from a person that's right there in front of me and I don't know how to break through. I think about her when I judge someone by the way that they look from the first time I see them. And I have been thinking about her a lot as we have been so disconnected for so long and trying to find what that feels like, which may be a better feeling than anyone has ever had connecting to God. Thank you. The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping, I dreamed I held you in my arms. When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken, so I hung my head and I cried. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine You make me happy when skies are gray You'll never know, dear, how much I love you Please don't take my sunshine away This is Risk. Before the break, we heard You Are My Sunshine by Natalia Schroeder from Poland. An unusual version following Jesse Rosen's story there. Behind me now is Peter Gabriel because, you know, it was so surreal to hear Jesse talk 
about the Jesuits' famous retreat called Kairos on the show. When I was 17 and still very devoutly Catholic, I went on that retreat. And, and I have no doubt that, you know, a little later in life, I might have found some parts of it pretty weird, like the part where you stare into each other's eyes listening to Peter Gabriel. But there were three things about that retreat that really stuck with me and I think ended up rearing their heads when I created this show in 2009. The first is the idea that there's ordinary time, chronos, and special time when you make a point of being a little more mindful of just how remarkable life can be, called Kairos. The second is the idea that it's better to err on the side of sharing how much other people mean to you more rather than less. And the third is the idea of also sharing more with others about the most remarkable times of your life. Does that sound familiar? Now, the Jesuits also taught us to think for ourselves. So eventually, I thought for myself and stopped being a Catholic. <laughs> but I still appreciate those lessons learned. And I still love Peter Gabriel. So much so, I guess, that I had literally blocked the memory. <laughs> of that particular exercise out of my mind right up until the moment that I heard Jesse's story. <laughs> Amazing. Folks, a couple of our newest Patreon members wrote the sweetest things to us. Kylie said, this show has changed my life and I want it to remain changing others' lives as well. And Juliana wrote, this podcast has gotten me through so many rough times, years of isolation, work stress, burnout, family estrangement, being young and broke. I am so grateful you make my life better, and I hope you know how important risk is to so many people. Thank you so much, Kylie and Juliana. That really does mean so much. To all of us, I'm laughing because my hands just made a fart noise. I don't know if it was recorded. Anyway, folks, <laughs> I'm losing my voice, so I'm trying not to do too many retakes here. <laughs> folks, there are so many bonus stories, conversations, and more at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. And if you need any other way to donate, you can just email me at kevin at risk show.com. If you're wondering if you should give or not, just think to yourself, hey, Kevin's losing his voice and he has a plane to catch first thing in the morning to go back out on tour with his comedy group. And he's recording this episode for us on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> All right, folks, next we're going to hear from Aaron Calafato, a storyteller and podcast consultant. His award-winning podcast, 
seven-minute stories is one you're not going to want to miss out on. So here is Aaron now with a story we call The Gun. I was 11 years old, living in the suburbs with my mom. My parents had been divorced for about six years, but for the majority of those six years, my mom was dating, a lot, with the intention to start a new relationship. But it never seemed to work out. Now, when this happens as a kid of a single mother, that means you usually start meeting new guys, new men. And my mom wouldn't tell me much about them. There wasn't a lot of discussion when I was growing up. It just was. And so I would be skeptical. I would be hostile towards them at first because they weren't my dad. And I missed my dad. For two years, I hardly saw him. And when I did, it was so short. I just couldn't access him. You know? No phone calls, no letters. But when it came to my mom's new boyfriends... I eventually would be accepting of them, and then I would get attached. And even worse, when the boyfriend had kids, then I would get close to the kids, and we would feel like we were a family. And then when that relationship would end, especially if it ended badly, I'd never be able to speak with them again. And that felt just empty. And no one seemed to notice. It was like losing my dad all over again, But even worse, it was like losing a whole new family. And I just fucking hated it. But I thought maybe this current relationship she was in was different because my mom seemed happy and it was going on for a very long time. And it was at this point where my mom decided that we were going to go to their house for the first time and spend the weekend. So I get into my mom's Chevy Celebrity station wagon and we drive all the way out into the country where her boyfriend lived. And he had this incredible house. I remember when we pulled up, it was like a mansion. The backdrop was just forest, woods that seemed to go on forever. And as we finally pulled up into the driveway, I saw her boyfriend and then Matt is standing next to him and they're both on the porch and they're both waving to us, welcoming us in. It felt like a fresh start to something new. And I noticed Matt was dressed almost exactly like me. We both had backwards ball caps, oversized Bugle Boy t-shirts, stonewashed jeans, except he had the Reebok pump sneakers, and I had the knockoff. But what he always had, every time I saw him, was this grin on his face. I ran up to the house, and Matt's dad said, hey, why don't you guys go back in the woods and play? Because Matt knows it like the back of his hand. So... Matt and I run downstairs, no parents. And then immediately Matt goes and reaches into this box and he makes this gesture to me. 
You know, like when someone puts their finger over their mouth and tells you to shh. And he goes into this box and he pulls out what looks like a huge handgun with a really long barrel. Now, I thought maybe it was a silencer, but I only thought that because I saw it in the movies. But I froze because I was really uncomfortable with guns. And the reason why was because of my mom. She talked to me about how weapons were just part of the military-industrial complex. And unless you were a law enforcement agent, you shouldn't have a gun or use one at all. And that's how I was raised. But Matt seemed to know what he was doing. And he said, hey, let's go out into the woods. We'll have some fun. And I look back up into the stairwell of the house, knowing my mom was upstairs with her new boyfriend. And I followed Matt. And we go out into this woods, and I remember how crisp it was. It was a fall day, and the leaves were crunching underneath my feet. And I remember the trees just swaying back and forth, and the leaves just falling all over the ground like watercolor paints. Now, as we're walking through the woods, this is when I start thinking about my relationship with Matt up until this point, just on the surface. And I found myself thinking about the first time I met him. Matt and his dad had drove over to our house one morning, very early. And I remember they pulled into the driveway in a really fancy sports car. And I don't even remember Matt's dad. I just remember Matt sprinting from the car through our front door, burst in without knocking, ran into the kitchen where my mom was making breakfast, grabbed a piece of bacon off the counter and shoved it into his mouth and ate it within milliseconds, smiling the whole time. And I'm like, I was shocked. I actually thought it was pretty cool. My mom was a bit surprised. Matt's dad was like, oh, what are you doing? But I thought, this kid's cool. And we took to each other. And we started playing inside the house, outside the house. And a lot of the day was just chasing Matt around because he was never really in the present moment. He got bored very easy. We would start a game. He'd get bored, move on to the next thing, and then the next thing. But I thought, that's okay. It's just nice to have someone to play with. Now, we were 11-year-old boys, so we didn't do a lot of conversation. But I was the kind of kid who liked having conversation. But he was a person that just didn't do that kind of thing. I did notice that when he was around his dad and my mom, he was so well-behaved. I mean, well-spoken, affable, friendly. I almost was a little jealous of him because he seemed almost too well-behaved. And he always seemed to impress them. Whereas I was just kind of confused and standing around most of the time. But when we were away from our parents, the more and more I spent time with him, I realized that he kind of let his guard down a little bit and always seemed like someone who had a secret. Like he was saying, now I can finally be myself. And I realized in this moment, I don't really know who this person is. And we were getting farther and farther away from the house. And that's when Matt starts shooting the gun, just up in the sky, just firing it. Now, I didn't hear a bang when he shot it, but I thought it was probably the silencer that made the sound go dull. But then we both noticed this squirrel innocently running up the side of a tree. And I think it's the way that Matt pointed the gun at it that made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And I thought to myself, oh my God, is he actually going to try to shoot this animal? It changed from just Matt shooting out into the open to him deliberately trying to find woodland creatures and trying to kill them. 
Now, sometimes he would shoot at them, and sometimes he would miss, and sometimes he would shoot, and sometimes he would hit. And I looked at his face and his eyes, and I didn't like what I saw. But still, he didn't hand me the gun. He didn't ask me to do anything. But then all of a sudden, he turns to me and says, hey, follow me, don't get lost. And he sprints. Now I have to follow him and find him because I don't know how to get back to the house. And I'm a little bit scared now. And I'm racing through these woods and I'm jumping over little creeks and fallen trees and logs. And when I finally catch up to him, we get out into this open field. And he runs through the field all the way towards the road. And I can see where he's running to. It's this little house. I call them little schoolhouses because that's what they look like. But they're very common in the cold weather states where parents would build these little houses on the side of country roads so that their kids in the cold winter months when waiting for the bus could stay warm and not freeze. And he goes into this little schoolhouse and he says, hey, check this out. And it seemed to be when observing the schoolhouse perfectly built for him to sit down and then kneel. And then there was this little hole in the house where you could point the barrel of a gun towards the road. And he sat there waiting. And I thought, what the hell is he doing? What's he waiting for? And then I could hear it. The sound of a car coming down the road. And my heart dropped. And I thought, oh no. And then he fired. And I heard clank. And he's laughing when he's doing this. And he turns around to me. And then he points the gun at me. And he says, okay, now you shoot. And he hands me this gun. And then out of the back of his pocket or his belt, he pulls out another gun. He must have grabbed it when we were in the basement. And he points it at me. And he says, shoot. I didn't know what to do. Now he's got the gun pointed at me. And I'm holding the gun. And it's in the little hole pointing towards the road. And I'm waiting for the next car to pass. And I'm trembling. And I realize in this moment, this is it. This is what it's like to face death. Matt is going to kill me. First it was squirrels, now it's me. And I'm mad at myself that I didn't see this coming. What is my mom going to think if he kills me? But what's going to become of me if I shoot a car and kill someone? I can't do it. I think, should I grab his gun? Should I attack him? I don't think so. He's quick with the trigger. He knows what he's doing. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. And I'm kneeling there, pointing this gun, and just hoping that this car will come. And it seems like it's taking forever. All I can hear is Matt breathing, holding the gun against me. And then I hear another sound. The sound of a car finally coming down the country road and my finger is pressing up against the trigger and as the car comes near I shoot and I hear a bang I hit the car as my eyes open I see the car pass and I see a sheriff's emblem on the side of the car that I just shot at I had hit a fucking law enforcement vehicle 
I freak out. I fall backwards. And when I fall backwards, I fire the gun again, and it shoots and ricochets off the top of the little schoolhouse. And then all of a sudden, I feel a pain in my arm. And I'm like, oh my God, I've been shot. I've been shot. I'm going to die. I could feel the tears running down my cheek, but it didn't feel like I was crying. It didn't feel real. And the only two things I could think of were surviving and getting back to my mom to tell her who Matt really was. And at the same time, both of us threw the guns on the ground and ran back through the field towards the house. And all I can think about is that I'm going to lose all of my blood and I'm going to die in the middle of this field. And my mom is going to think that I was purposely firing guns at law enforcement officers. And then we stopped suddenly and Matt turned to me and said, we've got to go back and get those guns because if the sheriff comes back and finds them, they're going to get fingerprints and we're both going to jail for the rest of our lives. Just then I stopped and looked at my arm and I realized there was no blood. It was just a bruise. And I knew in that moment, wait a second, these aren't real guns that we were using. They were like high-powered pellet guns or BB guns. And I felt a moment of relief that I wasn't going to die. But then something inside of me was still terrified about Matt. That regardless if they were real or not, regardless if you could kill someone with it or not, the nature of what he was doing, of what we were doing, was terrifying to me. I looked back at the woods and I thought about my mom. And then I looked back at the schoolhouse and thought about how much trouble we still could be in. And I decided to start slowly walking towards the schoolhouse because I had to pick up the evidence so that I didn't go to prison. And so we both started walking towards the schoolhouse. Didn't say a word to each other. When we got there, we picked up the guns. I gave them back to Matt. I never wanted to touch another gun in my life. No sign of the sheriff. We were home free. And when we went back to the house, I was so happy to see my mom. But for some reason, I didn't tell her anything. I didn't tell her a single thing. In fact, I remember when she asked me, did you have fun out in the woods? I remember just kind of rubbing my shoulder and saying, yep. And that was the last time I ever saw Matt. It was the last time I ever saw Matt's dad. Shortly after that, my mom and Matt's dad broke up. The relationship came to an end. The rotating door continued. And for years, I didn't say a single word to my mom. Haven't told her this story to this day. Why? I asked myself that question. Why didn't I tell her that day? Why haven't I said anything all these years later? Maybe it's because I was afraid. 
Maybe I wanted to forget about what happened that day because it was traumatic. But if I'm really being honest with myself, maybe it's just always been easier to keep that and a lot of things to myself because it gave my mom the best chance at being happy, at having it all work out. Years went by, and anytime I would think of this memory, I would get this pit in my stomach, and I would just have to go to a different thought because it made me so afraid. And just recently, a couple years ago, my mom randomly says to me, hey, do you remember Matt? And I kind of stopped for a second and was like, yeah. And she said, it's too bad, isn't it? I said, what? She said, I found out years ago he started getting treated for schizophrenia and his life was never the same. And as soon as she told me that news, that pit in my stomach was gone. I wasn't afraid. And the only thing that was left there, oddly, was compassion. he walked out Don't take your guns to town, son Leave your guns at home, Bill Don't take your guns to town He laughed and kissed his mom and said You're Billy Joe's a man I can shoot as quick and straight as anybody can But I wouldn't shoot without a cause I'd gun nobody down But she cried again as he rolled away Don't take your guns to town, son Leave your guns at home, Bill Don't take your guns to town This is Risk. This is Johnny Cash behind me now. And we just heard from Aaron Calafato. Don't forget to check out his podcast, Seven Minute Stories. Folks, a fun idea for a gift to give someone you love this holiday season is a cameo video from me at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison or a one-on-one coaching session with me either for storytelling 
or life coaching or just having a chat. I've had folks who have done that before, just a little coffee date sort of online experience with me. So find out about all of that at kevinallison.com. We'll be right back. We're back. Folks, on Thursday, we'll be rerunning a classic Shane Torres story on the podcast because Shane has a brand new special out now called The Blue-Eyed Mexican on his YouTube channel, so don't miss that. And we're debuting a new Shane Torres story that anyone can access for free over at patreon.com slash risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. Next week on Risk. Hey Siri, is a hot dog a sandwich? A hot dog is or is not a sandwich, or cereal is or is not a soup. When I was a kid, my favorite thing was to pretend that I was something else. Hot dog. Oh, I'm I'm the dog. <laughs> <laughs> 